Discover why we guard our fear and ways to cope more effectively next on the Quest for Life podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Quest for Life podcast. I'm Dr. Ed Slover, and I'm fiercely passionate about my faith, family, and friends, and all the blessings each brings into my life. As you can tell from last week, I survived cold and flu season, thank heaven. I'm feeling much better, and I'm really excited about today's episode, and I'd like to start it off with a statement to have you give some thought to. Here goes. People fear what they don't know, and they hate what they're afraid of. Let that wash over you for a minute. People fear what they don't know and they hate what they're afraid of. A simpler way of stating this is that people hate what they don't know because what they don't know is uncertain. If you're like most people, you thrive when things are certain and tend not to tolerate ambiguity. What I don't mean here is being able to go with the flow when you're with your family or friends, but rather the need for certainty with respect to security in your relationships or your job or income. And when we experience uncertainty, it causes anxiety. And when you couple uncertainty with anxiety, you get fear. There's no doubt that fear is a powerful emotion. One might even argue that it's the most powerful emotion, even more so than love. In many ways, this makes sense because fear keeps us safe. You see, our brains evolved to help us anticipate threats, either real or imagined, but it evolved to help us anticipate threats and it responds accordingly. Fear, like all other emotions, is triggered by our amygdala, which is seated in our limbic system, and it's the oldest part of our brain. Some even refer to it as our, quote, reptilian brain. Immaterial of what it's called, when we experience real or perceived threats, our amygdala lights up and releases a cocktail of neurochemicals. The physiological response we feel is fear. Now, since most of us in the United States in 2022 don't have to worry about being some animal's dinner or being attacked by members of a rival tribe, most people experience fear related to uncertainty and anxiety in relationships or at work. What follows are a number of examples about how fear shows up in our lives, ways we guard our fear, and things we can do to push through it. It should be noted that I'm not going to address intense phobias, such as fear of heights, fear of spiders, or fear of going outside. Rather, I'm going to explore more common fear triggers and how we can learn to better cope with fear and discover ways to become more brave or courageous in the face of fear. Let's get started. Researcher Dr. Paul Ekman spent his career studying emotions. He traveled the world and he studied numerous cultures and identified fear as one of the seven universal emotions. From there, he created a table called the Atlas of Emotions that displayed types of fear from least intense to most intense. These include trepidation, nervousness, anxiety, dread, desperation, panic, horror, and terror. Depending on how severe we believe the potential harm that is threatening us is, or whether the potential harm is immediate or impending, our fear response will vary in intensity. 
The good news is that we're able to develop coping skills to deal with both the intensity of the fear and the source of the fear itself. Psychologists have studied this for a long time and they discovered what's called exposure therapy. When we're afraid of something, the design of exposure therapy is to have us be exposed to what it is that we're afraid of, not with the goal of being becoming less afraid, but with the goal of becoming more brave. In addition to other common fear triggers, such as being afraid of the dark, fear of flying, or fear of death and dying, fear of rejection and social isolation show up consistently in contemporary life and we take measures to guard our fears. Why do we do this? Agency. Agency is a psychological term that means control. It's a coping strategy. When we experience fear, and remember, this is the combination of uncertainty and anxiety, we feel out of control. How come? Because we feel a sense of isolation or being alone because we feel a measure of disconnection from others. Our primitive brain hasn't evolved at the pace society has. For example, our brain is hardwired to eat everything in front of us and hasn't evolved to live in a world where food is all the time everywhere. And if you're not convinced about that, whenever you go out to eat with family or friends and there's our fries left over in the basket and the server doesn't take that basket, watch and see how people pick at the fries. Our brain hasn't evolved to food being all the time everywhere and we're hardwired to eat everything in front of us. Another example is our brain loves the pleasure that comes with dopamine hits, but it hasn't evolved to the ubiquitous stimulation from technological devices. Thus, our brain hasn't evolved to move past the feeling that isolation equals a death sentence. When we used to live in tribes, if any one person alienated themselves from the tribe, they were kicked out of the tribe. And being isolated out in the wild was the equivalent of a death sentence. And our brains haven't evolved beyond that just yet. When we experience disconnection in our relationships, our brains inform us of a threat, however real or imagined. Here are a few examples of how this shows up in our lives. Imagine you have a coworker who is less proficient with technology. And then the organization decides to roll out a change. Maybe there's a new software application that's going to be rolled out. And right in the moment, that person experiences uncertainty and anxiety, which is fear. In the moment, they go from zero to isolated, and they're terrified at the implications of what that means because they are already uncomfortable with adopting and or adapting to the technology. But what they're really concerned about is being disconnected from their job. In effect, losing their job because they fear that they don't, they won't have the skill set necessary to be able to uh, adapt and ultimately to keep their job. And one of the coping strategies with this is that they resist. They may try to constructively resist and learn why behind the what, but in many cases they resist in a dysfunctional manner where they just simply 
want to keep everything status quo. And what's ironic about the resistance is that the resistance will will bring about the thing they fear about the most faster than if they attempted to adapt to the, the new technology. And of course, that fear is, is being disconnected from their job and or losing their job. As leaders, one of the things that we can do to help them, especially if we already know that they're gonna be uncomfortable with that change, is that we can get out in front of it and help them cope more effectively. Maybe we sit down with them before the change is announced and say, hey, look, please know that I will do whatever I can to support you with this change. I wanted to give you a heads up before you heard it sort of more enterprise wide. And whenever you sit in the meeting and listen to the details of the change, really emphasize the facts and rest in the knowledge that I'm going to be there to help you along the way. After the meeting, what I'd like you to do is take the rest of the day off, take notes, give some thought, maybe reflect on what you learned, and then let's come back tomorrow and, and circle uh, back around to discuss how you're feeling about it. That's way more effective than simply leaving that person to their own devices to, to resist in the face of that fear. Next, Recall when you were a child and you were playing on the stairs or you were getting ready to ride your bike onto the street and out of nowhere, your parents yelled at you, telling you to stop. You were in your own world having fun and in a flash, your parents went from zero to angry. And in addition to yelling at you, you pro they probably got in your face and explained why what you're doing was wrong, why what, you're, what you were doing was unsafe. They were angry. And anger was their coping strategy for their fear. Fear of you getting hurt or worse still, fear of you dying. They guarded their fear with anger. Now, neither you nor they had any idea what was happening in the moment. All your parents knew is that they were upset. All you knew was that your parents were upset with your actions, which didn't seem all that helpful as you were drowning in your tears. Upon reflection, however, both you and your parents came to learn that guarding their fear through anger was their way to cope with their fear. Despite the fact that it was incredibly effective in the moment at shutting down your behavior, there are more effective ways to push through the fear, such as being transparent as to why they didn't want you to do certain things or providing reminders not to do them. Make no mistake, However, this approach is far from perfect, but it illustrates a way for parents to let their guards down and discuss their fears with their children, to discuss what makes them feel vulnerable with their children. For what it's worth, when in doubt, don't let perfect get in the way of good when it comes to children. The immediacy of the message is almost always better than the perfectness of the message, even if it involves guarding our fear through anger. Next, think about the last time you were about to engage in a conflict with someone and you chose to avoid it. How come? Well, we all appreciate that conflict's uncomfortable. That's self-evident. In addition to the perceived discomfort conflict causes, many people feel that conflict is unsafe, which leads to fear. We all know that the conflict will likely lead to disconnection from the person with whom we're engaged in the conflict, at least for a while. And we don't want to feel the pain caused by the disconnection because we perceive the disconnection will lead to social or emotional isolation. 
in effect, we guard our fear through the avoidance of being isolated from the other person, figuring that if we just let it blow over, that will be in a more effective way to cope than dealing with the discomfort and subsequent pain the conflict will likely cause. I should note that if there's a real threat, such as walking down a dark alley in, at night in a neighborhood with a reputation for muggings or worse, avoidance is probably an effective coping strategy. Aside from an extreme case like that, most conflict causes emotional disconnection and the perception of emotional isolation, which is what people guard against. Renowned psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson witnessed this dynamic over and over in his clinical practice and concluded that conflict avoidance may be an effective short-term strategy, but is ineffective as a medium or long-term strategy as the conflicts simply keep piling up, which invariably leads to bitterness, anger, and resentment, and ultimately greater disconnection. Rather than coping through avoidance, it's more effective to address the conflict, but rest assured this may be terrifying in the moment. It will, especially if you have a pattern of avoiding conflict. But guarding your fear through the avoidance of emotional isolation ultimately isn't helpful. What is more helpful is to become a bit more courageous in the face of fear. This is simple to say, but not easy to do. Next, imagine a time when you were accused of something you didn't do. Perhaps you were accused of stealing something from a friend or withholding information that could have benefited someone or even cheating on your partner or significant other. How did that make you feel? If you're like most people, you'd feel angry and then very likely feel disappointment. Now, since we've already addressed guarding fear through anger, I'm going to focus on the disappointment piece. When we're accused of doing things we didn't do, particularly by the people in our lives that we love and trust the most, the people that we're most invested in, disappointment often leads to us engaging in, in harmful behavior, such as passive aggressive behavior. And this might even take the form of sending location information when we go somewhere by ourselves or making snide remarks to the accuser, like, what does it matter? Or you don't trust me anyway. And what's happening in those moments is that we have, we failed to reconcile the disappointment and we guard our fear from future disappointment. We effectively put the other person on notice that they better not accuse us of any wrongdoing without just cause. This type of coping strategy is effective at making us feel better about ourselves in the moment, but it's ineffective in the sense that it furthers the disconnection we feel from the other person. A more effective coping strategy is to get a sense of why the other person is showing up the way they did with the accusations they made. After all, what we observe in others is how they show up. And that provides a lot of valuable information, but it's imperfect information. It's better to work with them to peel back the layers and get a sense of why they're showing up the way they are. Perhaps they made the accusations because they have trust issues or they experienced insecurity related to past trauma or past relationships. In any case, the why allows the two of you to begin reconciling the issue so you can move beyond guarding your fear of disappointment. Lastly, consider a time when you moved beyond a relationship, whether it was a job uh, with a supervisor you disliked or a friendship that didn't add value to your life or a romantic relationship where the conflict was too burdensome. 
whether any of those things were true. That's what you perceived and you guarded your fear of disconnection by leaving. And you were able to rationalize that decision. What I'm not saying is that leaving wasn't appropriate. It likely was in some case, but in others, leaving may have ultimately proved to be an ineffective coping strategy. What's better is to make sure you've exhausted all possibilities before leaving the relationship. There may be information that avails itself that helps you reframe your thoughts and allows the other person to push through the fear toward a more positive, productive relationship. For example, I was a graduate assistant at Wright State University in Ohio, and I was running the largest graduate program in the state. It was a master's program to help further the education of teachers. Unfortunately, the faculty chair that I reported to was a not so nice person, and that's putting it mildly. What I couldn't do over time was find um, any type of meaningful connection with this person. I felt constantly disconnected, and that and being disconnected from that relationship ultimately led me f- to feel disconnected from the work. And I was willing to forego the resume building nature of that because I just couldn't tolerate the ongoing disconnection with that person. And I resigned my assistantship. Fortunately, it led to a career in the health and fitness industry that lasted 16 plus years and really was a launching pad for something else in my life that turned out to be just overwhelmingly positive. But I was able to rationalize the decision to leave and I literally severed the relationship you know, with, without notice, but I was able to rationalize doing that because I just didn't see another way out. And I guarded my fear of disconnection through that rationalization. So it's extraordinarily important that before we move beyond relationships, whether it's with a supervisor or a significant other or even a friend, we need to make sure we've exhausted all possibilities before leaving that relationship, which is something I didn't do. And upon reflection, it's something I wish I would have I wish I would have done because there could have been information that would have availed itself that might have allowed me to reframe how I thought about that situation and allowed me to engage in more positive, productive relationships. As we wrap up another episode of the Quest for Life podcast, think about what people want most in relationships. Connection. People want connection in relationships. What type of relationships? All of them. Relationships to a significant other or partner. Relationships to your kids. Relationships to your parents, your boss, your job. All of them. We all want to be loved and accepted We all want to be seen and heard. We all want to be considered. We all want to be connected. And when those things aren't present, we guard our fears. The question is, is guarding your fears helpful to your life? I think you'll find out in most cases there are better ways to cope. And as you know, it's food for thought, fellow questers. You can contact the show at thequestforlife.com. That's the quest number four life.com. After you do, please share this episode with a friend you think might benefit. Don't hesitate to leave a five-star rating or even write a review. Thank you for joining the conversation.